Welcome everyone to the Dwelling Place Church. Thank you so much for being here today. I see a lot of new faces in here. If it's your first time, go ahead and just, uh, well, TDP family, go ahead and just say hi to everyone who's here for the first time. Praise God. Welcome you here. If you're listening in your cars or if you're watching us on YouTube, God bless you. We love you. Thank you for joining us today. Um, my name is Michael Figueroa. I'm the executive pastor of this church. And uh, it is my honor and privilege to be able to serve under our senior pastors, Ezekiel and Tanya Velez, and alongside my wife, Sarai Figueroa, who is, um, she's at home watching us right now with our daughter. So, uh, honey, I love you and enjoy the service. <laughs> Praise God. I don't want to take a lot of your time today. And, you know, I'm nervous. So if I just keep going, I'll babble about God forever. I'm okay with boasting on my God. Amen. Praise God. You ask me about myself, I'll give you about a minute at most, but uh, don't ask me about Jesus. Praise God. When I think about Jesus, what was the old song and what he's done for me, I can boast on him all night, all night. Anyways, <laughs> let us open our Bibles to the book of Judges, and I want to ask you if you can stand in the presence of the word of God. <clears throat> Praise the Lord Jesus in recognition of his powerful word. Interesting text that I want to read today from Judges chapter 16, starting at verse 17. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll recognize the scripture that I'm going to read. If not, then just listen up and I'll explain it to you. Now, when we have it, just say amen. Judges chapter 16, starting at verse 17. The Bible says, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. <clears throat> if my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting into sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. I want to read that again. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, our, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste to our land and multiplied our slain. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them, when they stood him among the pillars, 
Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed. Somebody say, then he pushed. With all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Today I want to speak from you, brothers and sisters, from the title, Then He Pushed. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy, God. You are amazing, Lord. It is wonderful, Lord God, to be able to comprehend just just in a small fraction that you, the king of the universe, have seen fit, Lord God, to come and grace us with your presence. And so we, we honor you today, Lord God, and we honor your word, and we ask that the word that we hear be written in our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our spirits, Lord. Speak your word to us. Open it to us. Give us illumination of your word so that we can become closer to you through your word. I ask you, Lord God, to open every single person's mind here to what it is that you want to bring to us today, Lord God, and use me as your vessel to speak to them. Hide my flesh, Lord God. Hide who I am, Lord God. Hide my inane ideas, Lord God, about what your words should be, Lord God. And if my notes are contrary to the words of your spirit, Lord God, then let them disappear right now, Lord God. But I pray in the name of Jesus that the only thing that is delivered here today is your word, Lord God. Speak to these people, Lord God. And if it is your will, use me to do it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord today. Praise the most high God. Every now and then I come across these awesome videos on Facebook or YouTube of people going through these military obstacle courses. Have you, anybody ever seen those? Um, I like to watch them. I don't know if anybody in here has ever served in the military and has actually completed these obstacle courses. But um, I like to watch the videos. It's incredible to see how some of these people can get through these courses so fast. Anybody, anybody else like watching those videos, uh, the military obstacle courses where they got to go through everything? I know some people, they're not into that stuff, but I like to watch it. No, yeah, yeah, I like to watch those videos. Uh, and you understand as you're watching the videos that these obstacle courses are training tools used to simulate some of the crazy real-life complications that these soldiers might encounter in combat situations. But the thing about these obstacle courses that you're watching, if you really look at them, though they appear lineal, though they appear straightforward, right? If you're watching, you know, they're on, you watch them run and you think, okay, they're just running through this course straight. If you really watch them, a lot of the obstacles that are on these courses are anything but straight. And watching the overall course run might give you the idea that the ideal method to complete those obstacle courses is to move forward as fast as possible. The thing is that these videos, they don't make it to Facebook or YouTube because someone can run as fast as possible in a straight line and get to the end. 
They make it to YouTube and Facebook because people fall and people crash and people struggle. And that's why we like to watch the videos, right? We like to watch this stuff because we identify with the struggle. We identify with crash and with fall and with pain. And we see that even the best are not perfect. And we're amused by other people's imperfections. Because it lets us know that we're not alone. You see, we often find ourselves in a situation of struggle. Because we run the course of life as though it were a straight path. And we race to be the first to reach whatever it is that's the finish line in our hearts. And because of this, we crash and we fall and we struggle because there are indeed mud pits on that course. And we crash and we fall and we struggle because there are indeed climbing walls on that course. And there are indeed swing bars on that course and there are rope climbs on that course. And we're hardwired to run straight as fast as possible. And we don't understand that sometimes you're going to hit a wall, it's part of the course. And sometimes you're going to come to a mud pit, it's part of the course. And sometimes you're going to come to a climbing rope, it's part of the course. But if you examine those completing the course, they don't try to power through the wall. And they don't try to walk over the mud pit as though they were Jesus walking on water. And when they get to the rope, they don't go past the rope as if it doesn't exist. No, indeed, they would be disqualified from the course if they did that. But when they come to the nonlinear obstacles, they actually don't continue forward into their own destruction. They actually don't keep going as if those things don't exist. They don't keep going until they crash. Some of them do or else we wouldn't watch. But when they come to these obstacles, they stop moving forward and start moving differently. Maybe they crawl. Maybe they swim. Maybe they climb. Maybe they go down. Maybe they go up. But sometimes going straight doesn't lead to victory as much as it leads to destruction. And so here we come to the close of this amazing series, Unstoppable Church. How many of you have been blessed by the messages in this series? It's been a powerful series. We've talked about a church who is bold in the face of fear. Amen? And we've talked about a church who has shown compassion in a time of hate. Amen? We've talked about a church who's prayed in a time of despair. And we've talked about a church that has displayed gifts in a time of disbelief. And when we talk about the unstoppable church, we don't mean the dwelling place church. We don't mean the church that's tucked in the corner of the full gospel Bible camp. We mean the church of Jesus Christ that is in this world. And we've indeed talked about being an unstoppable church. But because of who we are as human beings, because of the culture of Christianity that exists in this world today... And because of what we understand of the word unstoppable, we become the ones who crash and splash and fail in struggle. And we leave life's course uncompleted because there's a mud pit in the way or there's a wall in the way or there's a rope that we weren't expecting to have to climb as if the pit wasn't meant to be there as if the wall wasn't put there on purpose for an unstoppable church we've looked quite un we've looked quite stoppable that's a water break moment right there <laughs> somebody should have been like mm, 
I did hear some hmms. For an unstoppable church, we've looked quite stoppable. We thought that our prayers would stop the coronavirus by the end of May, right? That's what I heard the prophets saying on TV. But here we are in July with close to 540,000 people in this world dead or dying. That number is insane to even try to wrap your head around. We thought we wouldn't have to address racial discrimination in the body, right? Because after all, everyone knows a black church is a black church and a white church is a white church and a Spanish church is a Spanish church as though there's some kind of segregation in heaven. And now we can't figure out if black lives matter, blue lives matter, green lives matter. We can't figure out if the Antichrist is Democrat or Republican. Some of us can't figure out if Chick-fil-A conspired with the anti-meat industry to poison cow milk so that we can all eat chicken. This is just some of the crazy stuff that you hear out there. And because of all of this confusion, because of all of these unexpected obstacles, the church has been dejected and it has been re- and it has felt rejected and it has become depressed and it has become defeated and it's not because the church has been abandoned. It's not because God has not given us power. We learned over the past two weeks that we indeed do have power and gifts and can do miracles. But it's because we don't know how to deal with a course that is not straight. And when we come to an obstacle or when we go the wrong direction, we get discouraged and we get sad and we give up. But God is looking for someone today who can be like David. Who when he hit a wall and got discouraged and got sad, he didn't accept his discouragement. And he didn't accept his sadness. And he didn't accept his defeat. He looked at himself and he said, oh my soul, why are you discouraged? Oh my heart, why are you sad? And he said, I hit this wall. But in verse 5 of chapter 42 of the book of Psalms, he said, you know what? I hope in God and I will praise him again. He said, my soul is cast down within me, but I will remember you, O Lord. When David got to the wall, he didn't look at the wall and wonder, what do I do now? He said, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where cometh my help. It comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Church, the Lord made heaven and earth. And that same God wants you to know today that going forward... And moving past are two different things. Going forward and moving past are not the same thing. That unstoppable does not mean constantly moving. That unstoppable means reaching the destination despite obstacles and despite opposition and despite bad decisions. Sometimes we make wrong turns, right? When we're driving, even with a GPS, we get lost. And too often in this day and age, our response has been to turn around and go back home. 
But I heard a man of God say, if you miss an exit or make a wrong turn, your GPS may take you in a different direction, but the destination is still the same. The destination doesn't change because you made a wrong turn. The destination doesn't change because you've come to an obstacle. You might have to stop at a red light and you may have to slow down in traffic, but it doesn't change the destination and it doesn't make you stoppable. But the church has been stoppable because we go back instead of getting past. But somebody needs to let their neighbor know right now that I am the unstoppable church. Somebody needs to tell their neighbor right now because every obstacle will become an opportunity and every stumbling block will become a stepping stone. I am the unstoppable church. Doesn't matter if you dug the pit yourself. The Lord says to you today, you will cross it. And it doesn't matter if our minds have been on the wall. But like David, today we will remember our God. And yet, will we praise him? Because we are the unstoppable church. And so, as I was contemplating all this, I thought of the story of Samson. I said, this story of Samson perfectly illustrates this theme. You see, Samson was a man that was born into great purpose. We come to this point in the history of God's people where they have been chosen by God through a man named Abraham. And from Abraham's descendants, God raised up a a nationality, a nation of people who he would call his own and use to change the world. And he told Abraham, when he, prophet, when, he, when he revealed to him his plan through Abraham's life, he said, your children, as they multiply, your descendants are going to end up in slavery in a foreign land for 400 years. And indeed, they did. They went into Egypt and were in slavery for 400 years. But God lifted up a man named Moses and sent him into Egypt to bring God's will to the Egyptian king, Pharaoh, to release God's people from slavery. And this is the story of the Ten Commandments, and you know that Moses went into Egypt, and God used ten plagues to convince the Egyptians that he is greater in power than anything they could deal with, and so they had to acquiesce to his will and let his people go. And then they were set free, but they didn't know how to operate as a free people because they spent 400 years in a slavery mindset. And so before God could take them into the land of promise that he wanted to bring them into, they had to wander the desert until they could come out of this slavery mindset they they were in and come into a mindset of worshiping God. And the point came after 40 years that God allowed them to enter into the promised land and start to inherit the land that he promised to their ancestor Abraham hundreds of years before. And they started to take the land from the people that were there. And they started to conquer and they started to defeat their enemies. And and though they were slaves and though they were nomads, the point in time came where they were powerful. And they started to grow. And it was God's intention that he would rule over them as a people, as their king. And that he would rule over them through his law and through his system of worship. And he raised up people who he would use to guide them in their worship. There were priests. 
and people who were leaders and elders. But the Bible tells us that in those days there was no king, no human king. And so each person did what they thought was right in their own eyes. Not according to the law, not according to the word of God, but according to their own understanding. And we see constantly in the Bible that when we're left to our own devices, the Bible says that the heart of man is desperately wicked. And so when we do what's right in our own eyes, it just leads us down a path of destruction. And so without the people of Israel trusting in the leadership of God who they could not see, and without them not having a king who they could see, they constantly stopped worshiping God and started worshiping the gods of the people in the land where they, where they moved into and took over. And it started this cycle of, of um, defeat and slavery because God wanted to teach his people that, that those gods could not help them and could not save them. So every time they left God and started worshiping another God, it, it, it led to years of slavery and years uh, of being under subjugation of the, of the nations around them. But God is merciful, and God is good, and God is, is faithful to his word over his people. So he didn't leave them in slavery. He didn't leave them under subjugation of the foreign nations. The, the Bible says that each time they left him, he, he, he allowed them to be subjugated, but he didn't wait for them to come back to him. He raised up a leader who would go and, and, and free his people, and he called them judges. And in times of peace, the judges would make decisions for the people if there was conflict or dispute. But the idea was that's all they would do and God would be their king and be their leader. But unfortunately, there was this cycle of where they would stop serving him and be caught up in their mess. And there came a point in time, kind of towards the end of the rule of the judges, where a nation of people called the Philistines subjugated God's people Israel. And they were under subjugation at this time for 40 years. And God said, I'm going to raise up someone special to be a judge over my people and set them free from these Philistines. And at this time, the Lord orchestrated the birth of this special individual to lead his people out of slavery and so I, I, I want to focus on that for a second because I want you to understand something about your purpose. It's important that you know that before he allowed you to form in your mother's womb, as the Bible says, he knew you. And he had already birthed the purpose before he birthed you. Some of us, we walk around this world like we don't have no purpose in our lives. Some of us, we sit there dejected, feeling like we have no control and no destiny and we have no direction. And we sit there and we're like, God, you know, I'm waiting to hear your word. God knows the purpose that he knows the plans he has for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and to give you a great. Yes. Right. Yes. Come on, yes. Come on. Sometimes we get caught up in the feelings of our heart. And the poisonous thoughts of our minds. And God is saying, just listen to the words of my spirit. And so God chose this man, Samson, before his birth. And this is how the story 
tells us things went down. It says that there was a woman who could not have kids. She couldn't have children. And God used that as a vehicle to produce a miracle. There was no physical way that she could have children. And so in order to display his glory, he made it so that she could have a child. There's a lot of word in that. I, I don't want to branch off on all these different paths. But, but there's something about uh, something when it looks like you can't do it, when it looks impossible and God makes it possible. That's all I'm going to say about that. And so when this woman was out in the field one day, the angels, the angel of the Lord came to her and brought her the message that God was indeed going to produce a miracle in her life and she was going to give birth to a son. And he brought her specific instructions. I'm going to use this child. He's, he's going to grow up and he's going to lead my people out of slavery. He's going to be a judge over them. And so because of this, there are certain instructions that I need you to follow in a certain vow that he's going to have to follow in his life. And the instructions we know as the Nazarite vow. It's kind of a monk-like lifestyle where he had to swear never to touch any dead thing or defile himself physically by touching anything that was dead. Now, I don't understand why he had to vow that separately when that was already a law in the Mosaic law. They were not allowed to touch any dead thing or defile themselves by touching any dead thing. But just to make sure he understood the seriousness of it, the seriousness of defilement to his physical body and its relationship to the defilement of his spirit and his soul, he had to swear not to do it. Even before he had to swear, before he was even born, his mom had to swear to keep the Nazarite vow. Lest she do it and defile him through her. He had to swear, and she before him, not to drink any alcoholic beverage. Now, I know that some of us have different opinions on when it comes to drinking alcohol. And some of us are like, yeah, we could have one or two glasses of wine, like Paul said. And some of us are like, Jesus was at the party, and he turned the whole barrel of water into wine. And some of us, but for the Nazarite... There was no consumption of alcohol at all. It wasn't like don't drink until you don't get drunk. No, it was none. And then also, he could never, ever cut his hair. Thank God I didn't take that Nazarite vow. Well, it wouldn't have lasted anyway. My hair is all like, I'm not a young man anymore, so I'm past those days. <laughs> but this was the Nazarite vow. They lived a very strict lifestyle for those days. And the three parts of this vow, they symbolize. It wasn't just about making a vow not to cut your hair, not to drink alcohol, and not to touch any dead thing. The defilement the, 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 the of the body, as I already said, symbolized the pursuit of purity, physically and spiritually. And staying away from alcohol symbolized discipline and control. Sometimes it's hard to be disciplined and in control when you're in an environment that people are doing something that you don't want to do, right? As a young man, I remember that I was in a, a strict Pentecostal church, and, you know, we, we, that church believed in no drinking of alcohol whatsoever. I didn't grow up in the Lord, so I was kind of an alcoholic before I came to God. So I enjoyed it. I went to a party, and one of the leaders from the church was there at the same time, and he was drinking alcohol. So I said, okay, I think this is cool. I can do it. And I ended up getting drunk which is a bad thing because the Bible says be sober-minded, all right? I don't, I wanna, this is not the message for that. I don't want to get into that. But the, 
The point is that he was called to be disciplined and he was called to be in self-control. And he was called to focus his joy and his celebration not on those things but on God alone. And of course, the part about not cutting his hair. We all know why we cut our hair. Some of us cut it for style. Some of us cut it for convenience. Some of us don't cut our hair. We like our hair long and, and you know, different styles. Nowadays, it's different. But back then, they didn't allow their hair to, to grow so long and get into dreadlocks and stuff because it just was physically inconvenient. Picture you're out in the fields or you're climbing or you're going through the woods and your hair's getting stuck to every tree branch and stuff like that. No. But the Nazarite... He did not cut his hair because he needed to stand out from everybody else. He needed to look different from everybody else. But also at the same time, he had to not care about his appearance. Appearance had not, could not be a focus of the Nazarite because his, his focus only had to be on God and God's will alone. And so his parents were faithful to the instructions that the angel gave them. And they raised him as a Nazarite. And as a result of how they raised him, the power of God manifested in him. In, in chapter 13, verse 25, it says that the spirit of the Lord began to move through his life. And we don't know exactly what that means. Maybe he came and became a judge and started, or he started walking in the direction that the Lord would send him. But we know Samson, the story of Samson as a manifestation of a man with great physical strength and power, but this is not what happened in chapter 13, verse 25. It just says that the spirit of the Lord began to move in his life. And so through him, the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that manifests the gifts in us, began to manifest the gifts in his life. And as long as he adhered to his vows, then you would see God's growth in him but the thing is that at this point of his life, adherence to his vows was the responsibility of his parents. And as long as they maintained their responsibility to ensure that he adhered to his vows, everything went well. Samson, at this point in his life, was under the umbrella of his parents' spiritual authority. He didn't touch any dead thing because his parents didn't allow him to. He didn't drink any alcoholic beverage because his parents did not expose him to that. And he did not cut his hair, not because it was his fashion preference, but because his parents would not let him do that. Some of you in here ought to thank God that you're under the umbrella of someone else's spiritual authority today. I know it gets annoying and I know it gets upsetting, but let me tell you something. When you're under the umbrella of someone else's spiritual authority and they're tasked with guiding you in the right way and they do it in a responsible manner, it is a blessing that you will not understand until the day comes where your accountability is in your own hands. For some of this, for some of you here, this church is your umbrella. And as long as you're on this campground, you feel the spirit of God. But the moment you come out from under this umbrella, things get difficult and sin comes knocking on your door and your strength fades and leaves you and you don't know how you're going to make it to the next day. I was recently having this conversation with my mother-in-law because as a teen, I didn't really serve God. And she was the individual whom God used to introduce himself to me. And so because of that, I fell under the umbrella of her spiritual authority. 
And what that meant for me was she was tasked with keeping me in line and trying to lead me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. And so on a practical level, what that meant was when I was out hanging out in the middle of the night with my friends and smoking and drinking, and I'd be walking through a random neighborhood, when I look up, I would see her peeking her head over a roof, literally. Some random neighborhood. I didn't know how she got there, how she got to the roof, but I saw her. And so I knew it was time to stop drinking and smoking and get my butt home. And that meant when I was just walking around, or when I, when I was hanging out on a roof smoking and drinking with my friends, and I go, you know, behind some air vent or something, she was there waiting to scold me in the corner, in the darkness. I'm talking about like 3, 4 in the morning, and it's dark. Or when I was hanging out in some dark park somewhere, I could see her turning the corner, always out there in the street making sure that I was not lost. Now, as a youth, it was upsetting and it was annoying. But as a 38-year-old pastor, I miss being able to share the weight of that accountability. Young people, hear me. This is important. Umbrellas act as a shield from you becoming affected by the elements that are out of your control. I know we like to have control and think we have control, but there's rain that comes down that you have no business to have control over. And the umbrella of someone else's spiritual authority keeps you protected in the time that the rain comes falling. Sometimes you're upset that you're getting wet and you don't understand how much more exposed you would be if somebody else wasn't holding their umbrella over your head. Think about it this way. When I was a kid and I was out in the rain, I walked under my mama's umbrella, right? She would hold me close and she'd hold the umbrella for both of us. But there comes a point in our lives where mama buys you your own umbrella and says, here, hold this yourself. Now, the good thing is God is not like your mama. When mom and father forsake you, God will lift you up. And unlike the church, the umbrella of his authority does not end at the door. God has an umbrella that is always open, always ready to shield and to protect you. But we get mad at God whenever a little bit of spray of rain comes under the umbrella, right? Or when the wind hits our face. And we're ready to throw away the whole umbrella because we got some drops on us. We question why we are in the storm. God, why am I in this storm? Not knowing that he's protecting us. And we wonder why if we're going to get wet anyway, why do we need this umbrella at all? That's me, 100%. I hate umbrellas. I hate carrying umbrellas. My wife's like, oh, it's, it's raining out. Take this umbrella. I'm like, I don't need it. I'm going to get wet anyway. And because of that, I get wetter than I needed to get because I'm stubborn and I don't want to carry an umbrella. You see, just because you get a few drops of rain on you doesn't mean the umbrella's not there. What it means is that there's part of you that's still exposed to the elements. Always have his umbrella of protection open for you, but he isn't going to create a bubble around you to protect you from yourself. And the problem with the unstoppable church is that we don't stop when we get to the end of the umbrella. And the drops in the wind, they weren't meant to take you out. They were the sign that you were getting too far from the middle of the umbrella. What happens when you're in a powerful storm and you're holding your umbrella? If it's just drizzling, you're just holding your umbrella. But if it's a storm, that umbrella is right next to your face, right? You're as close to the middle as possible. But the further you get from the center of the umbrella, the more exposed you get to the rain. 
But we get a little bit wet and we throw the whole umbrella away. Right in the middle of Central Florida, 3 p.m. thunderstorm. I give you that picture so you can understand the ridiculousness of it. But we do this to God all the time. So let's see what happens to Samson. We learn that not only is he gifted as a leader, but there is a specific gift of extraordinary strength, physical strength, that he's able to employ when the Holy Spirit manifests through him. And it is this gift that God uses in him against the Philistine overlords. The Bible says that the Spirit of God would come upon him and he would do extraordinary things. He would carry things that no mortal man could carry and, 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 and fight in ways that no mortal man could fight. And he was so strong. Some historians try to find um, parallels with him and Hercules, uh, these different demigods, because of the extraordinary supernatural um, strength that he displayed. It wasn't a normal strength. It wasn't a mortal strength. There's one point where it says that he lifted up and carried out the, the, the gates to a whole city on his back. And this supernatural strength first manifested itself when he was attacked by a lion. He was walking down a path from his hometown to another town with his parents. He was on his own. And the Bible tells us that he was in a vulnerable moment. There was no one around him. He was by himself and he, his hands were empty. He had no weapons. And it was at this point in his life when he lacked all other resources that the Spirit of God came upon him. He was able to defeat, destroy, and the Bible says tear this lion apart with his bare hands. And I know now in the days of, you know, animal rights and stuff like that, we cringe at something like that. But if you were walking in the middle of the desert and some mountain lion attacked you, exactly. if the Spirit of God came over you and you can defeat that thing with your bare hands, I assure you, you will. But the key here is the Spirit of God didn't activate in his life before this. It activated at this moment because it was a moment of vulnerability for him and it was a moment where he lacked all other resources. And so if you're sitting there right now wondering when God's going to manifest through your gift in your life, examine whether you have set up your trust in resources other than him. And we see this power in Samson manifest on a few other occasions. But it's the famous event that happens when he's confronted by over a thousand of these Philistine soldiers and kills them all with nothing but the jawbone from a donkey carcass that was lying on the ground. It makes no sense whatsoever why this was the tool that was employed. But all that matters is that it got the job done. See, we don't think like that right now in this day and age. We want situations and conditions to be perfect for us, and we don't care about the job getting done. We care about the, how the tool looks in our hands. And sometimes we don't exercise or steward what God has placed in our hands because we're waiting on the perfect resources. And the tool to our victory may not look like we thought it should look, but the ridiculousness of the tool did not take away from the intent of the gift and the completion of its purpose. The jawbone of a dead donkey is ridiculous. But it still got the job done. 
See, you're sitting here and you're wondering what your gift is because it doesn't look like how you think it should look. And, and, and maybe you have the gift of administration and you think that looks like you must be the president of the United States. And you don't realize that you got three kids in a neat house because you understand systems and you understand organization. And now Pastor Sarai is over here in kids' church with the gift of creativity and teaching. But it's a mess over there and she needs you over there in kids' church. But you refuse to exercise the gift because it looks like the jawbone of a dead donkey. That's oddly specific. <laughs> Don't you know that the gifts develop through use? Jen didn't always sing that way. <laughs> it's, it's time and practice, right, Jen? And pastor didn't always preach that way. I was there at his first message. I think we put it together in my living room. Carlton Avenue. We were like, what, 16 years old? Long time ago. And Darren, where's Darren at? He's not here today? He's online watching? Darren used to press the left arrow on the computer for the PowerPoint presentation, and look at him now. All this tech and stuff that's set up in here. And Josh, you know. And all the people that have come up through the exercise of their gifts when they were small have seen the growth of their gifts into something larger. Now, Samson, he wasn't afraid to exercise his gifts. That was the thing. He liked to exercise his gifts. He liked to go around and be Mr. Strongman. I mean, that's a cool gift to have. If I was... Superman, then I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have a problem exercising my gift either. But like me, he was also gifted with handsomeness. Thank you, thank you. But the issue is that when he got out from the umbrella of his parents' spiritual authority, this became a problem for him in that his, it, it caused trouble in his pursuit of relationships. So remember what the deal was. God wanted to use him to deliver Israel from Philistine subjugation. And part of this meant that he had to live a Nazarite lifestyle in his commitment to God. Can I tell you now that he broke most of the vows and a good number of the laws as well? He broke most of his vows. God said, I'm going to give you extraordinary gifts. You're going to be, super, you're going to be Superman in ancient Israel, and, and you're going to deliver my people, and all you got to do is live this lifestyle of pure and total commitment to me, and he failed in almost every aspect of it. In fact, remember the story about the lion that he killed? The Bible says that he was walking down that same road later, and he saw a, a, a beehive in that lion's mouth, and he went and he took the beehive and he, he touched the dead lion. And he got the beehive out of his This was complete defilement against the law of touching dead things. The Israelites could not do that. They would have to live outside of the camp for seven days and perform rituals and sacrifices in order to get cleansed before being able to go back in. And here is the leader of God's people touching this dead carcass and defiling himself in his way. 
And he didn't just do it to himself. He went and he took the defiled food and he gave it to his parents who were also serving and following the Nazarite vow for his sake. And he defiled them too. And the Bible actually tells us in the law, it says if you touch a dead thing and you're defiled and you don't cleanse yourself, everything and every person that you touch after that is also defiled. So every single person that he came in contact with and touched physically also became defiled. It's according to the law. See, even back then, they didn't understand the grace of God. Because if they were going by the law and its purity, then God should have wiped them out then. And the reason why he was even going down that road in the first place where he had to kill the lion is because he was going to a town of people that were not Israelites to marry a woman who was not an Israelite woman. And if you look at the law... There was a, a, a provision that forbid intercultural marriage, not because they cared about the color of the skin and stuff like that. They were all Middle Eastern people. It was because they knew that the people on this side believed in one God and the people on this side believed in the God of the universe. But if these people got with those people, they had a tendency to leave God and serve their gods. And so in order to combat that, they said, just don't marry them. We're going to leave that in the law. Don't marry them. Stay away from them because you're going to leave God and, and mix with their gods. And that's what happened time and time again. And so he broke the law by marrying interculturally. And then the town where he got married was actually a vineyard. And the Bible says that he partied there for seven days during his wedding. And he broke the vow to stay away from alcohol. He wasn't not just supposed to not drink it. He was also not supposed to touch anything, any grape that grew on a vine. And he broke that vow. He married a, a woman whose father's business was vineyards. And he partied in the vineyard for seven days. And when he told his parents who he wanted to marry, they said to him, can't you marry someone among your own people? And he refused to honor their wishes. He broke the fifth commandment. That's the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother. <laughs> Anyways, he broke the law to honor his parents. And then later on when he was not married anymore, the Bible tells us that he slept with a prostitute in another town. Wasn't even an Israelite prostitute. God forbid there were Israelite prostitutes back then. But he broke the laws against sleeping with a woman who wasn't your wife. We know that that was the law because Jesus referenced it. He said that in the law, you know that Moses said, if you sleep with a woman who's not your wife, you're under the offense of adultery. So we knew that that was in the law. He broke it. He slept with a prostitute, the leader of God's people, breaking the law. And then after that, we see that he got into another intercultural relationship with this woman named Delilah. And so the children's stories and the mythologies, they paint Samson as a man of great strength. It's okay, Pastor. They get the idea. He's still looking to make sure. Fifth commandment? Like fourth or fifth or sixth, one of those three. And so the children's stories, they paint Samson as this man of great strength, right? Superman. It's definitely the fifth commandment. I know what I'm talking about. But if you really read the story, all I see is a man of great weakness. And it's easy to judge the judge 
while reading his story, right? Like, Samson, how could you do that? After all that you've been through, after all the gifts that God has placed in your life and everything that God has taken you into and from and through, how could you do that? It's easy to sit back and read the story and say that, right? But the same Holy Spirit that was inside him is the same Holy Spirit that is in you. And which of you today want to lie and raise your hand and say that you're not weak? Good. Thank you. See, he was good at employing the gifts of the Spirit, but he was terrible at exercising the fruit of the Spirit. He had no self-control. If he was in church, he would be the fourth prophet, speaking in tongues with no interpretation, singing a song in the middle of the sermon. No self-control. Go back and watch last week's message. You know what I'm talking about. And so we sit here and we look at his lifestyle and we look at how he operated in the spirit and we ask God the same question about Samson that we ask about ourselves. How is it, Lord, that you could still use me despite what I've done? Come on, somebody. Now I'm getting somewhere. How is it that I could be sitting here at this bar about to take this shot when this dude starts confessing his troubles to me and I give him life-saving wisdom? It's oddly specific. How is it that I could be sitting here in this holding cell with these three other dudes and somehow here they are asking me for advice, asking me if I could write their legal paperwork for them. How is it that they could see something in me in this place of darkness that I put myself in? How is it that I could get on this altar and preach and you move in glory in this place after what I did last week? And God says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. He says, while you were yet sinners, I loved you and I died for you. He says, the gifts of God are without repentance. You think he didn't know you were going to fail him when he imparted that gift into your life? God isn't surprised by your humanity. He's not surprised by your humanity. Don't confuse unstoppable with unfallable. His grace is sufficient for you. And his strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so now we find Samson. He has one last piece of connection to his spirituality. It's one last part of the vow that he did not break. He didn't cut his hair. I know for some of us it might seem simple, like eh, whatever. He did all this other crazy stuff. What's cutting his hair going to do? But it was just part of the vow that he took, and it was the last thing that was holding on to him and his connection to God. All the other things that could connect him to God, he broke those connections. But he kept that one last part of the, his connection to God. But as a result of his capitulation to his weaknesses, he actually goes and loses that connection. Let's put the scripture back up. I started in verse 17. It says, so he told her everything. He says, no razor has ever been used on my head. This is my, this is my connection. This is the secret of my strength. He said, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. Now, could have fooled her because she probably saw him drinking and understood that he shouldn't be in a relationship with her. But this is what he's revealing. If my head were shaved, he said, my strength would leave me. And I would become as weak as any other man. 
And when Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. They paid her for the information. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she then called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and I'll shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. So because of what we read in this part of Scripture, many people wrongly interpret that Samson's hair was the source of his strength. Growing up as a child, that's what I thought. Because he said, if you cut my hair, I will become weak like everybody else. And so we think that His hair was the source of his strength, and his strength went away because it was cut off. And the problem with that understanding is that this is also how Samson explained it. He said, if you cut my hair, I will become weak. I will no longer have my physical strength. But the scripture clearly states that his strength left him because he was no longer connected to God. He went out anticipating to have that strength. But it doesn't say his strength left him when he went out. It said he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the explanation is clear. It wasn't that his hair was the source of his strength. It was that the spirit of God that was upon him was the source of his strength. And I actually heard a teaching once that said he didn't lose the connection when his hair was cut. It said that that the connection was already gone the moment he told Delilah that that his hair is where his strength came from. Because he did not glorify God and say, God is the source of my strength. But he said, if you cut my hair, then I will lose my strength. Be careful that you never think your gifts, your talents, or your abilities are intrinsic. The Bible says pride is the precursor to destruction. And so every time you put your pride in your gift, every time you put your pride in your ability, every time you put your pride in your talent, you think that it comes from you. Be careful. Haughtiness goes before a fall. And as you can see, Samson paid for it with his eyesight and his freedom. And the truth is, though that blindness he's in now is is bad, they took out his eyes, the truth is that that blindness is just a reflection of the callousness with which he treated his spirituality beforehand. You see, like Samson, we walk around callous in our sin and blind to our slavery. And him losing his strength, it wasn't an immediate consequence. His separation from God was years in the making. I'm sorry, getting hot and these glasses are fogging up his separation from God was years in the making it took compromise after compromise after compromise until it stopped being a spiritual weakness thing and became a heart and mind thing now somebody here is starting to relate to Samson amen you couldn't relate to him when he was Superman but you could relate to him in his weakness I hope you could relate to him in his in his uh his his compromises, I hope, right? Unless we got some supermans in here and women in here. Where are our hearts and minds? It's hard to feel unstoppable when you take a loss, right? 
And it's hard to take a loss when we're so used to winning. But the wall that built up to this loss is built with the bricks of compromise and held together with the mortar of lack of discipline, mediocre prayer life, inadequate scripture consumption, conformity to worldliness, inappropriate fellowship with those that are not of the body. It takes a series of compromises to put that wall in your way. And when you hit that wall, yes, there's pain, but there's also numbness. Yes, there's disbelief that how could this happen to you? How could I go that far? But there's also the lie in that shock because it's been building up to that point for some time. Somebody here has to have experienced this. And I can't be the only person who has failed God and have been lifted up. I can't be the only person who has made compromises in my life and still seen the hand of God's mercy come down. Take heed to these words if you haven't been there because this is important to understand that check yourself now if you're making compromises. Take the opportunity to turn around because it's hard when you hit that wall. And so Samson has lost his connection to God and he's blind and he's enslaved. But something interesting happens in verse 22. We can put that back up. It says, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, that's not just a throwaway verse in the Bible. It's very interesting. We know that strength didn't come from his hair. So why is that there? It's almost like movie foreshadowing, right? If you're watching it in a movie, like, it would happen faster than in real life. Like, he'd be laying there in slavery and blind, and you just see the hair starting to grow. And as you're watching this movie, you're like, oh, crap, in about seven inches, these Philistines are going to get it. But we know that's not exactly what's going on here because the hair was not the source of his strength. But the thing about God is, no matter how far you feel from him, he's never far from you. I believe that this statement about Samson's hair was a symbolism of his path to reconnecting with God. Sometimes in our most bound, in our most blind places is where we find a semblance of that connection to God. It's where we find that David statement in our lives where, you know, I remember God. That's a powerful statement. You don't remember God because you came out of church and got cut off and cursed someone out in traffic. No, you remember God when you go through a series of compromises and you're in a deep pit. That's when you remember God. You already know God when you have to say, I'm sorry and please forgive me every single day for the little sins that you commit. It's when you've grown callous. It's when your heart has fallen and your backslidden that you have to remember who God is. And I believe that that statement right there is showing that the memory of who God is in his life is starting to grow again. God should have left Samson as a slave and raised someone else up to deliver his people. Yes? How many times have you tried to convince God of that in yourself? I sinned against you, Lord. I'm not worthy to be your son. Does that sound familiar? And what did Jesus say about that? He says, the minute that the unworthy son came back, the father was already there with his arms wide open. God wants you to know that he is the author and the finisher of your story. You don't dictate your story to him. And though you think you lost everything, you don't notice that right in the middle of your slavery, your connection to God starts to grow. Let's continue on with these verses. 
Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, our, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, our God has delivered our enemy into our hands. The one who laid waste upon our land. So we, we're coming to understand that Samson has done some great things and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called this blind slave out of prison and he performed for them. I don't know what he was doing, but I'm sure they were like insulting him and abusing him. And when they stood him among the pillars, Samson, whose hair began to grow back, whose connection began to grow back, when Samson was put among the pillars, he said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I could feel the pillars that support the table, the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. How many times have you been in that situation? How many times have you been in your bed? The room's spinning because of all the drugs and the alcohol that you consume, saying, God, I know I'm in a place that is bad right now, but remember me. You just left that woman's house, and you're driving home in the quietness of your car and saying, man, I've stained myself with this sin, but God, remember me. You just did whatever it is that has been your weakness or your downfall, and you've been callous the whole time. The series of compromises that have led to that downfall has been callousness and has caused darkness in your heart. But all of a sudden, when you should least be doing it, you cry out, God, remember me. And he says, God, remember me. Strengthen me. Just one more time. Pull me out of this just one more time and I promise I'll never go back. Now it's starting to resonate, right? Let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. Then Samson reached the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with all the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. There was a time when Samson could look at himself in the mirror and never imagine that he would be brought so low. But his latter glory, his latter glory, I'm going to keep up that last verse there. His latter glory was greater than his former glory. When he looked at himself in the mirror back in the day, he saw the gift of handsomeness, right? And he saw the gift of his strength and all the different things that God has placed in his life. And he never could imagine himself brought so low, but it was in his lowest place that he found the most glory for the Lord. The Bible says he did more at his death than during his entire life. You know who else had greater victory in his death than during his time in this world? Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this message today is for the backslider. 
This message today is for the broken person who's sitting there falling, thinking that there's no way that they can climb out of the depth of this pit that they have dug for themselves, thinking that they, they, they've ended it all, that they've ruined the purpose in God. This message is for the one who crashed into the wall. I had to preach this message to myself not too long ago. Last year, I was manifesting great purpose in the Lord, and I say that with all humility. Every Sunday, I would stand on this altar, and I would tell you about his purpose in my life and in your life, and tell you that he was leading you to something great. And every Sunday. It was a blessing, but some point in my heart and in my mind, I lost connection to God. And I put myself in a 40-day fast. And that was the last thread that I was hanging on to. That was the hair that I had not cut. And you guys didn't know that. You knew that I took a break and I was on sabbatical, but you didn't know that I was holding on by a thread. And if I was not in that fast, who knows where I would be? If he had cut his hair before that, who knows what would have happened to him? And the devil thought he had me. And I'm not so conceited to think that if I went down, I would bring the church down with me. But I know that as an executive pastor, I would have had an effect. And so in my logic, in my humanity, I decided to stay away. But what he didn't see, what the devil didn't see in me, was that my spiritual hair started to grow. What he's not seeing in you is that your spiritual hair is starting to grow. Somebody needs to run your fingers through your spiritual hair today. Somebody needs to flip it. You see, hair grows on the head, right? And the Bible says you're the body. Christ is the head. Jesus has been there the whole time. You thought that you alienated him from, his, from your life because you couldn't feel his presence anymore. And God is there just like in the prodigal son story with his arms wide open waiting for you to run back. Christ is the head. He was there the whole time. And when I thought I destroyed the purpose, God told me, you cannot destroy what you didn't create. You cannot destroy the purpose that God has placed in your life because he created the purpose. The purpose remains. He says, is my arm too short? Did I lose my hearing? He says, cry unto me and I will answer you, he says. Stand to your feet, people. Please. It's time for the stopped church to truly become unstoppable again. It's time to have a David moment. I want everyone in this place, close your eyes and just focus on yourselves right now. Some of you might be in the heights and, and walking around in the power of your strength. But nobody is exempt from their humanity. And so I want you to focus right now. It doesn't even matter if you could come into this church and praise God and pour out his glory and pour out your praise. But when you go home, you find discouragement and sadness. This is the moment where you need to look at yourself right now. Ask yourself, ask your soul right now, why are you discouraged within me? Ask your heart, heart, why are you so sad? Ask yourself, why are you cast down? Yeah, you messed up. Yeah, you came out from under the umbrella. Yeah, you hit the wall. Samson was up against the wall too, but just like David said to himself, so did Samson, I will remember God. And so when he was up against the wall, he didn't crash, he pushed. He didn't crash, he pushed. 
Somebody in here today needs to stop crashing into the wall and push it down. Soul, spirit, heart, mind, strength. Why are you so cast down? I will remember the Lord. He will lift me up. I don't know what anybody in this place is going through today. But I do know that when you're in that place, it's a hard place to be. And I want to pray with you. Sometimes it's hard to drag yourself out of that pit. Or to understand that you're not responsible to drag yourself out of that pit. And sometimes I needed the love of my brothers and my sisters in Christ to climb back up out of that and into the arms of God. And if it wasn't for the fellowship of my brothers and sisters and their love, then I wouldn't have made it. And it's a lonely feeling, and I felt very alone and very unworthy, but they never left my side, not because of who they were. We all fail God, and we all will fail each other, but because God is in us, he will use the most unexpected places to reach you because his purpose remains, and his purpose is to reach you. And so if you're the person sitting here, and you're telling yourself, I'm discouraged, I'm sad, my soul feels like it's in the basement. I want to pray with you today. If we could all just bow our heads and close our eyes. If you need to come up to this altar, then come up to this altar. I'm not going to hold you back. But I want to pray. I want to pray with everyone, and I will pray over anyone who specifically wants to come up here. And let us pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Even if I was preaching to myself, Lord God, I know that I needed this word. And I know, Lord God, what it is to be in the place that Samson was in, Lord God. To have the spiritual eyes cut out of my head, Lord God. But you are a restorer, Lord God. You are a restorer of our spirits, Lord God. You're you breathe the breath of life into us, Lord God. And time and time again, Lord God, you give us life in abundance, Lord God. And so I pray over this congregation today, Lord God. If anybody's in this place, Lord God, awaken them. Awaken them right now, Lord God. Awaken the memory of who you are, Lord God. And from whence comes their help, Lord God. Awaken the hope inside of them right now, Lord God. They might still be in the state, Lord God, of sin. But I pray, Lord God, right now that you awaken them, Lord God. Samson was still in his slavery, Lord God. But the hair still started to grow on their, on his head, Lord God. Awaken them right now, Lord God, where they're at right now in the name of Jesus, Lord God. It's not about being perfect. It's about surrendering to God and understanding that he will lift you up. I pray, Lord God, that you give us strength, Lord God. Give us strength against coming to that place, Lord God, because the devil wants to sift us as wheat. But you are in control. Help us, Lord God, to be able to let go. To be able to let go of the pain of our past, Lord God, and the burdens that our past is placed on our soul, Lord God. Let us be able to let it go and understand that you're in control, Lord God. And that we're not strong, but your love is strong. That we can't do it, but we can do it with you in our lives. That if we cast our burdens on you, Lord God, that you would give us your rest and your peace. And if anybody in here 
doesn't know God, doesn't know Jesus as the redeemer of your soul, as the restorer of your peace, I want to tell you right now that he wants to be your rescue. And all you got to do is let him. All you got to do is believe and say, Lord, I believe in you and in what you want to do in my life. And I receive that right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all. God bless you all.